we're talking about the means of grace, and oftentimes when Bob and I use that term or that phrase, the means of grace, we get puzzled looks amongst other Christians and even within our own congregation because it is a concept that is not widely taught in churches today. In fact, the last theologian that really talked about it in a systematic way was Louis Burkhoff, who had it in his systematic theology back in the 1930s. Before that, a man named Charles Hodge from the 1800s. He was a theologian from Princeton. So the means of grace, the question is, what in the world are we talking about when we're using that term? Well, think of it this simply. The term means, think of it as a tool. It is a tool by which God sanctifies us or conforms us into the image of his son. Now, remember, when we're talking about sanctification, remember how that differs from justification. Justification is the once-for-all act whereby God declares those who are sinners to be righteous because of their faith in Jesus alone and because of his finished work. And that's a once-and-for-all act. Is everybody with me? That's justification. When we're talking about sanctification, the term that we have to think about in our minds is an adjective in the Greek, hagias. Everybody say hagias. Hagias means to be sanctified or to be holy. Okay, to be set apart for God's use and be set apart from the things of the world. All right, now there's two ways in which sanctification is used. Sometimes in the New Testament, this initial being set apart is being referred to. It's almost synonymous with election. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, Paul talks about how the church at Corinth was sanctified in Christ Jesus by God's calling. So the verb there is hagiazo. It's to be made sanctified, to be set apart, but it's initially So therefore, it's synonymous with election or initial salvation. You and I are initially set apart by God according to his elect decree to belong to him and not to the things of the world. Okay, that's the first usage of sanctification. The second one is a process whereby you and I, after our justification, are going to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ as we grow in holiness in both doctrine and deed. Does that make sense? Okay, so when we talk about the means of grace, the means are God's tools that enable us to be sanctified. And the claim that Bob and I have been making for many years is that God uses means, that is tools, to both save and sanctify. Okay, let me give you evidence of this from Romans 10, verses 14 through 15 and verse 17. It says this, it says, How then, Paul asked the question, Will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. By the way, that phrase, those who bring good news, means preach the gospel. It's a participle form of uangelizo. Where does that come from? Uangelion, we call ourselves evangelicals, right? We're gospelers. So literally that phrase, the feet of those who bring good news, are the feet of those who proclaim the gospel. And that is good things. And now in verse 17, listen to what he says. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so if you came to faith in Jesus Christ, it wasn't because one day you woke up magically and said, you know, I think Jesus is the son of God. And I think I'm a wretched sinner. 
And I think that, in fact, he's truly man, truly God. He lived the perfect life that I couldn't. He goes to a cross. He died a substitutionary death. You didn't come up with that information magically through osmosis on your own. God used the tool, primarily the Word of God. And so you believe the Word of God. Again, the Holy Spirit regenerating you, enabling you to believe. And that's how you were saved. And so our claim is just as the Word of God is primary in saving you as God's primary tool, it is also primary in sanctification where God is going to conform you over time in your Christian walk to the image of His Son as you grow in holiness again in doctrine and deed. All right? Now, let me show you a passage that I think points this out very nicely. Colossians 2.6. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Now, notice the phrase, as you have received Christ. The term received there is paralambano. Okay, paralambano is used not of receiving Christ into your heart, but it's used as the idea of receiving a corpus of doctrine or tradition that is synonymous with the apostolic word. So it's a reception of the word of God. All right, evidence of this would be seen later as I'm going to show you 1 Corinthians 11:23. Paul's instituting the Last Supper, and what does he say? I received from the Lord that which I pass on to you. When he says, I receive from the Lord, it's paralambano. Okay, he's receiving doctrine straight from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul's talking about the gospel. He says, I delivered to you that of first importance, that's what, that which I received, paralambano, from the Lord, namely that Christ had died for our sins according to the scriptures. Okay, so again, reception has to do with receiving the content of the Word of God here. It's not receiving Christ into the heart. Now, notice he says, therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus the Lord, he says what? So walk in Him. Okay, now the term walk there, peripateo, is synonymous with walking it out or living your life. That's how you live your life. So what Paul is saying is just as you were saved, you are sanctified. Just as you were saved by faith in Christ alone, you're going to walk the rest of your life out through faith alone in Christ. Okay, now let me talk about the problem at Colossae. At Colossae, you had a bunch of Christians who, yes, they began through faith alone in Christ, but they became very concerned that you had these wicked demonic beings that controlled their fate. And so in their daily lives, what they started doing is instead of relying on Christ alone, they started going to angels trying to adjure them, trying to manipulate them to protect them from this fate that supposedly the demons controlled. Are you with me? So the problem then is these Christians who began with Christ, they end up going from plan A, Christ, to plan B in their daily walk. And Paul is saying you don't do that. But a fair implication of this passage is if you began salvation through reception of the word, you walk it out the same way. Your Christian walk, your Christian sanctification is primarily through the Word of God. Is everybody clear on that? So I think that's a fair implication. Now, does anybody have any thoughts or comments or questions on this so far? All right. What I'm going to do is I want to turn to, again, the Lord's Supper is the means of grace we're going to be focusing on, but I want to show you where all four tools that God uses to sanctify us are listed 
in the scriptures in one place. That's Acts 2.42. You've seen Bob and I point this out many times. Here, it's pointed out that the early church came together and devoted themselves to these things. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to uh, prayer as well. Oh, by the way, let me back up. I want to mention one thing. Before we move on, here's what I want you to see is notice these four items. You have the apostles' teaching, you have fellowship, you have breaking of bread, and you have prayer. These are the four tools that God uses to sanctify us. Let's go through each one of them. The apostles' teaching, of course, is the Word of God. Okay, that's synonymous with the Word of God. Remember in the last slide, I had 2 Timothy 3.16-17 through 17 listed. The Word of God is a primary means of, obviously, salvation and also sanctification. Okay, 3.16 says all Scripture is what God breathed. It's breathed out by God, and it's profitable for training, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness so that the man of God is adequate. That means he lacks nothing. And he's equipped for how many good works? Every good work. That's right. In Greek, it's pas. Okay, so 2 Timothy 3.17 says that the man of God, through the word of God, is equipped for how many good works? Every good work. So that means that in the scriptures, we have sufficiency. We're not lacking anything. Is everybody with me? So let me ask the question then. If that's the case then why are our seminaries saying that the scriptures are insufficient? We have a young man who is going to seminary right now, and they tell him to be sanctified. We're going to send you into solitude for a bunch of days. And by the way, don't bring your scriptures. Are they not attacking the sufficiency of the scriptures? Certainly they are. Let's look at another tool that God uses, fellowship. Fellowship. Think about Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. The writer of Hebrews says, We do not forsake the assembling together as some are prone to do. Why? Because in the fellowship... It is within the fellowship and the assembly of believers that all of the other means are dispensed. The word of God, the Lord's Supper, prayer, but also the encouragement of one another. Who had Hebrews 3.13? I'm going to have readers, by the way. Mary Alice, Hebrews 3.13. Oh, wait, we got to have it held against you. (laughs) On the record. (laughs) But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Did you hear that? Encourage one another today while it is still called today. Today meaning it's the daylight. It's the day of salvation. Night has not come. And he says, encourage one another. It's in the assembly. It's in fellowship so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So one of the reasons why we gather together like this is because the world is going to beat you up bad during the week. But you come here amongst brothers and sisters who say, you know what, you're not crazy in believing in Jesus Christ. Keep pressing on to the mark. I believe these things as well. These things are true. These things are happening. These things will happen. And they encourage you and enable you to persevere in the faith. So that's one of the means by which God keeps us persevering in in the process of sanctification. Now, breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper. That's what we're going to be focusing on in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. The Lord's Supper, think about it this way, it is a tool whereby God shows us in a pictorial form the gospel. And it reminds us not only of what God has done for us in Christ, but that in fact Christ is coming again. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. So the Lord's Supper is a pictorial proclamation 
to us, not only that we're saved and we're with Christ forever, but that he's coming again. And that we know that one day when he drinks of the fruit of the vine, the next time he does it is with us in the kingdom. So that enables us to also persevere and say these things are true. I'm living for the king and his kingdom, not the fleeting pleasures of this world. Prayer. Prayer is unique. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says pray without ceasing. Why? Because it is the unique privilege of those who are faith in Jesus Christ to have access to the Father. No other people on the planet have access to the throne room of God except for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And you and I can approach the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. And he will help us real time. Can you imagine? So now we're not just talking about what God has done or what what he will do, but he's currently acting on our behalf. That's the kind of power that we have access to. He will, remember Romans 8, 28, he causes all things to work for the good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. And so he does that through all of his means, but he does it real time for us in prayer. So these, again, are the tools that we're claiming God uses to sanctify us. All right? Now, again, these are the tools that God has given. Let me ask you, where is it found in the scriptures that we're commanded to ever go out into solitude? Or to, oh, yes, Bob. Well, I want to make a comment about that. One of the problems, because I've read a lot of books and interacted with people that are violently disagreeing with us, yeah. and they say, well, uh, like this Donald Whitney, who I wrote about, Teaching Solitude and Silence. You won't find a spiritual disciplines book that doesn't teach that. Yeah. And he says, well, Jesus modeled it. Okay, because he went out there. Well, there's, there's several issues here that I want us to understand, so I want to get it on the yeah, good. recording here. Number one, Jesus didn't command us to do this. Okay, so we don't have a command from God. Number two, there's no promise. If God said, or through Christ or one of his authoritative apostles, if you go out into solitude and silence without your Bible, <laughs> uh, I'll meet you there and bless you and speak to you and whatever I say, that's what you do. So you become a mystic hearing words from God. There's no such uh, command. There's no such promise. So you're doing this in unbelief or presumption because you can only believe God and his promises as we've been seeing. And so the Spiritual Disciplines book, and uh, in my article about this, I wrote this, I can't get a response from any of these guys. It's like they want to do what they want to do. They don't care what the Bible says. Right. Okay, here's one more thing to consider. And that is that Jesus was holy, sinless, and perfect, one with the Father from all eternity. When Jesus went out into silence, he wasn't bringing any sin with him. Right. He wasn't bringing any irrational thoughts he wasn't bringing anything but it, the perfect communion he already had other than what's implied in uh, humbling himself and emptying himself, as it says in Philippians. Right. And, but he never loses his deity. So therefore, to command a young Bible college student to go into solitude and silence with no Bible as a condition for graduating is wickedness, it's perversion, and I call those leaders to account who have done this 
You are in rebellion and sin against God, and you must repent. You cannot treat God's flock this way, commanding them to do what God never commanded. And I might add, the first ones to do this, the so-called desert fathers, who were nuts, literally, they went out there, and some of them lost their sanity. Right. And I wouldn't, if I had to spend 15 days in solitude and silence with no Bible, I seriously doubt I could hang on to my sanity. That's right. Well said, Bob. I've got too much garbage in me still, not totally sanctified. Yeah. There's thoughts that may or may not be from God. This is a prescription for disaster. Right. And we here, I don't care if anybody else does it, are calling the entire church to repent of this wicked doctrine, this presumption, this unbelief, and get into the scriptures and find what the promises of God are. And as many are the promises of God, says the Lord, are yea and amen. 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 Well, he never promised to meet us in solitude and silence. That's well said. So forget about it. Well said. Jesus goes into solitude he brings perfection we go into solitude we bring our sin nature very bad idea what do we have to offer ourselves except who we are and uh, that's well said you know the other thing is you're saying that i'm thinking about this passage remember acts 242 here is what we call a descriptive passage okay in other words it's describing what the early church did now the rub and the challenge that bob and i often get is hey acts 242 is just descriptive of what the church did where does it command us to do these things well that's what i just listed for you Okay, Hebrews 10, for instance, number two under fellowship, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, we do not forsake the assembling as some are prone to do. What's the implication? You will assemble together. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, remember, Paul says to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season, ready to be, you know, to rebuke and correct, etc. with great patience. Okay, because there's a time that's coming where people won't endure sound doctrine. All right, so the point is we are commanded in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, it's a command. It's imperative. Pray without ceasing. We're commanded to do these things. The Lord's Supper, you're going to see the Lord say through the Apostle Paul, do this in remembrance of me. It's an imperative. So what Bob and I are saying is, hey, if the Lord has commanded us to do these things and they're associated with a promise, that's what we have with these tools. Then we do them and God will honor that and he will sanctify us. But where has God promised in the scriptures that if you take a reading called Lectio Divina, where you do a divine reading, and you keep using this word as a mantra and empty your mind and go into this solitude where God is going to speak to you in this still small voice, that's Lectio Divina's goal, that you're going to hear from God mystically, not rationally from the scriptures. Where has God promised us that? Where has God commanded us that? Well, of course he has not. And so that's why these are the tools that God has given us and we must remain within those bounds. Otherwise, we're no different than Adam or Nadab and Abihu, who went on their own. Yes, we got a couple back here. Uh, I guess my question is, you have four things up there. Yeah. And I know uh, many people of Reformed tradition, they have a longer list than four. And they refer to them as the ordinary means of grace. Implied in that seems to be that those are the way that God ordinarily works, but they don't rule out that God could not work in someone's life in some different way. Sure. So what's your comment on that? Yeah, great, great challenge, Norm. Yeah, when they talk about normal means, remember in God's providence, he can work providentially in anybody's life. Uh, for instance, let's, um, as a young man, when I came to faith in the Lord, providentially the day that really shook me was the day where I saw an airplane crash. 
And God providentially uses that to bring me to the Lord so that I'm open to the gospel, okay? But should I devote myself to airplane crashes? <laughs> It'd be a very bad thing. So the point is, God providentially can do many things in people's lives, leading them into sanctification. But notice this term, devoting themselves. By the way, the, the phrase they're devoting in the Greek implies that they did it often, and they did it with intense effort despite resistance. Okay? So the idea then is we devote ourselves to these things because, again, we don't want to presume that God is going to providentially um, show us anything, do something. We are commanded in Scripture to be about these things, and we know that God will use them to sanctify us. Now, again, can God use other means that providentially uses to help someone in their walk? Certainly he can and he does. But, again, these are the means that we're commanded to do and devote ourselves to. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, Bob. Great answer. And keep in mind that providence, God is in charge of, and it's only known as history moves on. Right. Providence contains good and evil. Yeah, amen. Okay, providentially, a lot of bad things happen, and God uses them for good for us. He's in charge of that. But if we intentionally do something evil, that's a transgression of God's moral law. Right. And right. so what has he ordained with a promise that God's going to use? Yeah. Everything else in the whole universe is at God's disposal, and he will use it to okay. sanctify us. That's his business. Amen. And so they don't distinguish between providence and what's revealed in Scripture. That's well said. Um, oh, I'm sorry, we had Chris Turrentine, and then we have Nancy Moen. Um, well, let me just add one thing to that, too. In some of the, like Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology norm, you'll see him add to the means of grace um, giving. Okay? Now, what's interesting is, wh what's the problem with that? So here we have a systematic theologian, a man who's paid to do this, and I, he has a lot of wonderful things in his systematic theology, but think about in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul explains that the giving was a result of God's grace. It wasn't a means of grace. Do you see what I'm saying? So he has the cart before the horse. The reason why the Corinthians gave was because a prior work of grace that God had done in their lives. What Grudem is doing is he's switching it and saying, well, if you give, that's a means or a tool by which God will sanctify you. No, no, no. It's because of the sanctification that you give. Okay? And so um, you'll never hear Bob and I say, by the way, you should all give us lots of money here and you'll be more sanctified. You know, that's a great way to pump the coffers, but it's not biblically accurate. So that's another point there. So anyway, I'm sorry, Chris. Um, isn't it, is it true that all false religions want to empty you? Whereas in Christianity, it's the only religion that we are filled. And I would have to... what, what, is that, what is that verse in the Bible where God cleans house and then fills it and said, be filled with the Holy Spirit or else enemy's going to come in and bring back. Yeah, well, he blows on them. Um, he brings back more than yeah, we're there to begin with. I, I would say this. I would say the difference between Christianity and the world's religions isn't a difference between emptying and filling per se. Okay, because think about this. One, um, This is getting somewhat off topic, but when we talk about being indwelt by the Spirit, you and I by faith certainly are indwelt by the Spirit, but the issue isn't a spatial one, it's a relational one. And what I mean by that is um, we know that the Holy Spirit, omnipresent, is everywhere. Okay, so think of the Shekinah glory in Israel. We know that because God is everywhere, He certainly was with the Philistines, right? But not in a saving way. So His Shekinah glory, when He manifests Himself, it is a demonstration that in a saving way, He's with the Israelites. 
Okay, in the same way, you and I are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Certainly he's there, but it's in a unique way. Okay, so the point is it's not a spatial issue, it's a relational issue. The big difference between Christianity and the other religions is the difference between objectivism and subjectivism. We have an objective faith revealed in the scriptures that is objectively verifiable through history because God demonstrated through his holy apostles and prophets, through miracles, through signs and wonders, that these things are true. The rest of the world is caught up in mere feelings and subjectivism. Okay, And so to me, it's not a, necessarily a, an emptying or a filling issue. It's objective versus subjective. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, oh, just real quickly. Sometimes in context of this call to solitude, I hear a verse oft identified with it, be still and know that I am God. So yes. could you comment on that? Yes. Um, Psalm 46. Okay. 46. Psalm 46 is abused often, often, often. Be still. Bob and I were talking about, I don't know if we got that on radio yet, Bob. But the whole context of Psalm 46 is about trusting that Yahweh will fight. It's the idea of ceasing struggle, ceasing fighting against the enemies of God. Why? Because, you know, if you belong to Yahweh, he's going to fight. And remember, the context is with Israel. Okay, so the, the literal translation to me isn't, you know, be still your mind and know that I'm God. But it's stop fighting. Let the battle be joined by Yahweh. How did Israel get in trouble in the book of Isaiah, they got in trouble because they kept joining military alliances with Assyria, with Babylon, with Egypt, rather than trusting in whom? Rather than trusting in Yahweh. Exactly. So the correct rendering of Psalm 46 isn't be still as you're stilling your mind, but the idea is not trying to fight for your salvation, but trusting that Yahweh will give it. So it's a faith issue, not a silencing of the mind. It's a complete category error that the mystics make. Yeah. Okay, now... What time? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, that's right. No, it's all good. I, I love this, by the way. This is great. I just, I apologize. We got kind of a late start, but we'll get through this. What I want to do now is I want to hone in on the Lord's Supper. Okay? That's the one means of grace that we're going to focus on today. So what I want to do is I want to show you this Exodus motif inherent in the Lord's Supper. And what I mean by that is in a real sense, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of our exodus, that we were in bondage to sin in Egypt, as it were. I'm using that as a metaphor. But we're on the way to the promised land. And so the supper is a reminder of where we came from and what Christ has done for us, the salvation. But it's also a proclamation of the promises to come. And so there's a very unique, I think, relationship or parallel between Israel and the church in this instance. And here's what I mean. Israel, for instance, in the Old Covenant, they have a mediator. A mediator is a go-between between two parties. Okay, remember, Moses goes up on the mountain, and the people remain below. Moses speaks on behalf of God to the people. He's their prophet. But he prophesies that one day, in Deuteronomy 18, there's going to be a prophet like him that would come up from amongst the ranks of Israel, and they would have to listen to him. So Jesus is the mediator of the New Covenant the covenant that is without end. It is a ratification of the Abrahamic covenant. It is bringing it to fruition. Okay, so that's the first thing I would point to. Now, how does Israel become a people? Well, it begins at Passover. They have a Paschal lamb. This is their Passover lamb that they're called to select on what day? The 10th day of Abib, which later becomes Nisan. Each family is to select a lamb without blemish. Okay, what date is Jesus 
come into Jerusalem on the 10th day. And he says, if you'd known the time of your visitation, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Okay, so we have to select our Passover lamb as well. So this Paschal lamb, he is slain. And the idea is if you take the blood of the lamb and you put it on the doorposts of the homes, the Israelites would be passed over from judgment. Okay, well, we also have our Paschal lamb, it's Jesus. Okay, he is the unblemished lamb, according to 1 Peter 1.19. And so by faith, if we apply, by faith, I'm making a metaphor here, faith in Jesus Christ and by faith apply the, door, the blood to the doorpost of our heart, as it were, we're also passed over from judgment. Is everybody with me? That's kind of the metaphor that I see. Okay, now, when it comes to the supper, you have the Passover, And the Passover, there's going to be many of them. They're going to do it over and over every single year as a memorial as to what the Lord had done for them. He brought them out of Egypt, but it's also a proclamation that they have a future with their God. Just as David said in Psalm 23, that he would have a a portion at the Lord's table in the presence of his enemies. That's the great hope for the people of God. That it's not just that God saved me, but that it's he's going to save me that he's bringing me into a kingdom where I will have table fellowship with him forever. And so they're going to proclaim that through many suppers. Well, we do the same thing. We devote ourselves to the means of grace, meaning that we have not just one supper, Lord's Supper, we do it often, okay? Now, contrast that then with baptism. Paul points out that the Israelites were baptized in the sea, in Moses, and in the cloud. They had a form of baptism. They went into the Red Sea, God saved them through that act because he destroyed the Egyptians, but he also cut off them retreating back to Egypt. So in a real sense, baptism is this identity with Christ. We're dead with him. We're also alive to the resurrection and the newness of life, but we're cut off from Egypt where there's no going back. And so that's why you only have one baptism. You don't devote yourself to baptism over and over. Why? Because it's a one-time act. There's no going back to Egypt. There's no going back your old life. Okay, now with the supper, realize that that's going to be pointing forward to the promises. For instance, now Israel goes into the wilderness, right? Now many of them fell because of disobedience. Well, you and I also have trials and tribulation, don't we? We have our wilderness experience. Doesn't Paul say in Acts 14.22 that it's only through tribulation that we inherit the kingdom of God? So we have a very similar journey, but realize that Israel was heading towards what? They're heading towards the promised land. But even when they got into the promised land, they were to partake in the Lord's Supper. That is their Passover. And you and I are going to take of the Lord's Supper here and now until we get into the promised land. Who had Hebrews chapter 4, verses 7 through 9? This is a point that I want to make. Again, why did the Israelites have the Lord's, or the Passover, I should say, while they're in the promised land? Well, Hebrews comments on this, I think. It's by implication. Hebrews 4, 7 through 9. Hebrews 4, 7 through 9. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Did everybody hear the logic there? If Joshua, who brings the people of Israel into the promised land, had given them complete rest, why does David write some 400 years later that there remains a rest for the people of God? 
the point being, this is the point that I want you to understand, is that even when the Israelites enter into the promised land, they're not home. Okay, so they continuously have this supper that reminds them that one day they're going to have table fellowship with God. Is everybody with me? Just because they're in Canaan, in Israel, doesn't mean they're home. Okay, so the point is you and I also have this supper, and we're going to keep doing it until what? Until we're home. It's important that we remember not only what Christ did, that we're taken out of Egypt, that we're taken out of the bondage and the slavery of sin, but that one day we're going home to him, and we're going to have supper with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, so it all points ultimately to that great promise. So here's the importance of remembering Exodus 12:14. Moses says this, he says, Now this day, and he's talking about Passover, will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. They're to do it over and over. Exodus 12, 24 through 25, he says, And you shall observe this event, that's Passover, as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall observe this right. My point there is that even when they get into the land, they keep having the Passover. Why? Because they're not home yet. And so you and I are not home yet. We keep having the Lord's Supper, proclaiming one day we're going to eat it anew with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this idea of remembering is so important. Why? Because when people forget the God of their salvation, they end up sinning against him. And the idea of forgetting doesn't mean, you know what, I forgot the Y, e, y what is it, Y equals MX plus B slope formula. I don't know how I came up with that. I haven't had algebra in like so many years. <laughs> But it's not the idea that I just forgot a fact. When God says in Isaiah 17:10 that the people of God had forgotten the God of their salvation, he's not just saying, you know what, you made a whoops. You forgot that 2 plus 2 is 4. He's saying that the fact that God had saved them was no longer significant to them. And truth be told, they lived their everyday life like, you know, I wonder if that really happened. I wonder if we could explain it some other way. And when you and I start living that way, you and I say, I wonder if I can really trust that this kingdom is coming. Maybe I should start sending it up because after all, if this is all there is, I'm living for here and now. And so these means, these tools that God uses for our sanctification is a way in which he reminds us that these things are real and that we have a promise. And so that's exactly what Paul does then, or the Lord, I should say, when he institutes our supper. So Paul begins here in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, and notice he's going to institute the Lord's Supper, and he begins by saying four. I'm going to be pointing out a lot of fours. This is an explanatory four. And what that shows is he's explaining the reason for the Lord's Supper that connects to a previous verse or previous section. He says, for I received from the Lord. Now, the reason that's important is he's receiving something from the Lord that is being distorted by the Corinthians. So in other words, he's basically saying, hey, you're getting it wrong hey, I received it from the Lord. This is the way the Lord's Supper really is, okay? In fact, who had 1 Corinthians eleven twenty? Oh, no, good. Oh, excellent. <laughs> 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. Yeah. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That's all you need to say. Paul is correcting them. He's saying in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, 20, hey, when you're meeting together, you're not having the Lord's Supper. Whatever you're having, you may be eating and you may be drinking, but it isn't the Lord's Supper that you're having. So now he's going to remind them what the Lord's Supper is all about. He says, I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now notice this call to remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice Paul does not say a couple of things that he could have. He does not say, as often as you do this, know that I will be physically in your presence in the elements. Does he say that? Well, don't you think if he was actually in their presence, he would be saying something like that? Well, certainly he would. And notice he doesn't even say that when you do this, know that I'm spiritually present with you. Okay, now, to be fair, when two or more gather, he is spiritually present. He's omnipresent. The hypostatic union, we have Jesus, who is, yes, truly man, but he's also truly God. Okay, but the focus here isn't on Jesus being present. Why? Because it says, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, the focus on this ordinance is what Jesus has done for us, but the fact that he's bodily coming again. You see, you and I have literal promises that we can hold on to. It's not enough to have Jesus omnipresent with us spiritually. What ultimately happens for the people of God is that he comes bodily for us. That's the great hope. You are not going to be left in a spiritual body. You're going to be given a physical body. Is everybody with me? Now, it's called a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15, but the idea is it's both physical and it's the idea that it can be transported. In other words, a spiritual body is juxtaposed to a fleshly body. It's talking about two different orders of being. But the point is you're not left just a ghost floating around. You're going to have physical promises. Okay? So the great promise then is that God has saved us, but he's also bringing him to himself at the Lord's Supper or at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isn't that exciting? It's real promises. Now, anybody have any comments or questions so far? Any thoughts? Show ideas? Things that you want to bring up? Now, again, notice also here, I want to point this out. Notice Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's very important. Why? Because those are imperatives. Jesus isn't saying, you know, by the way, if you want to do this, it would be a great idea. No, this is a command from the Lord. We do this. Let me ask the question. Where do you see Jesus or any of the apostles say, when it comes to solitude, do this? When it comes to walking a labyrinth, do that. When it comes to a divine reading where you empty your mind, do that. We have an imperative to do this. Where is the imperatives for those things? And so, It's not in the Bible. That's right. Amen. It's the words of men rather than God. And so that's why we know that the Lord's Supper is a tool that he is, in fact, ordained for our sanctification. Okay, now, let me talk briefly here about the abuse of the Lord's Supper. Two things I want to focus on. Number one, the false claim that the table should be fenced from believers who are not supposedly good enough. What I mean by that is, unfortunately, in too many of our churches in America today, the focus is on you remembering how bad you are. Okay, now, hey, you better look at how you've been acting this week. Otherwise, if you're not good enough, you can't partake of the table. Rather than So now we're remembering ourselves for the week rather than remembering who Christ is. Now, it's okay to remember that Christ saved us and we were sinners. It's okay to remember that. But the focus isn't remembering us and how bad we are for the week. He said, do this in remembrance of me. 
Okay, so now you have a bunch of people who are being exempted from a tool that God uses to sanctify them because they're supposedly not good enough? What if I said to you, you know, examine yourself to determine if you're good enough this week to hear the word of God? And you would say, well, wait a minute. Isn't the word of God the means by which God is going to bring me to repentance, bring me to salvation? Now you're withholding that from me? Well, how come the same isn't said then of the Lord's Supper? And yet denomination, church, you have church leadership that will say, you know what? You really have to examine yourself. And if you're spiritual enough to partake of the supper, the supper's for you. But maybe this week you were in such and such a sin and you did this or you did that and perhaps the supper isn't for you. Dear ones, that's an abuse of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper functions as a means by which you and I remember Christ. And I'll show you, it's a distortion of what Paul meant by examine yourself. So we'll get into that. The second abuse, and we won't have time for this, we'll get this next time, whenever we do this again, is the, the foolish focus on metaphysics of the elements rather than remembering the promises of God. It's a foolish thing to focus on, well, do you think it's transubstantiation or consubstantiation? Transubstantiation is the Catholic belief that when the priest consecrates the bread, it literally turns into the body of Christ. And same with the wine. Do you think Jesus was focused on that? If Jesus was focused on that in the supper, why did he say, do this in remembrance of me? And you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you say, hey, as often as you do this, I'm right there with you. But he doesn't say that. What about consubstantiation? Luther saying, well, the elements are in, under, and around, or Jesus is in, under, and around the elements. And he makes the sponge analogy and all these different analogies. You know, it's not that Jesus is in the elements or is the elements itself. It's that he's present with the elements. Well, all of these discussions are really immaterial when you realize that the focus is on the remembrance of what Christ has done. So we're going to take number one, though. We're going to look at the abuse of the we Lord's table. have a table. question here? Yep, go ahead. I just Sorry, wanted Brian. to ask, Eric, do you think that in the millennial kingdom, being that the verse we just looked at in 1 Corinthians, do this until the Lord returns, in the millennium kingdom, even though he's returned, will the people be doing that in the millennial kingdom? You know, I don't think we can know. We do know that we're going to have a marriage supper of the Lamb. And as far as having table fellowship with our God, I think like when you read, for instance, Psalm 23, David expects that he will be, have a presence at the table of the Lord. Now, whether or not we celebrate that annually, we're not given any information about that. But we know this, we're going to have fellowship with our God. And table fellowship is a sign. Think about your family. You have this precious time where when you're eating with your family, they're included. They belong to you. And that's what fellowship meant. If you're having fellowship, table fellowship with somebody, they belong. And so the imagery there is if you and I have table fellowship, we belong to our God. Now, we know there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be a great banquet. Now, whether that is hap- you know, happens routinely every day in the kingdom, I just don't know. But we know it'll happen at least once. Yeah. And he said he would drink the fruit of the vine. He won't do it again until the Father's kingdom. Amen. And the other thing to remember about the millennium, Jesus will be physically here. We can ask questions. Yeah, that's right. So we don't need to know what ahead of time. We say, okay, Jesus, how often do you want us to do this? Right, right. amen. That's exactly right. It'll be great. Yeah. Peter. Oh, we got to hold it against you here. <laughs> Back to abuse number one. Yeah. Uh, isn't the essence, and this is probably obvious, that no, not none of us is good enough? That's the whole point. Okay. Exactly. And so you don't exclude somebody from hearing the word of God because they're not good enough. The point is, well, that's why they need to hear the word of God. 
And the reason, yes, certainly none of us are good enough. By the way, if, if you have a, an examine yourself to see if you're good enough for the table, you know who will show up at the table? Those who are liars. <laughs> it's the table fellowship of the liars then, you know. <laughs> All right. The self-deceived, right? All right. Now, here's the claim. Many claim today that believers must examine themselves to see if they are good enough for the table. That's something you hear often. Okay, in fact, Bob and I were under pressure at the old building to do that. And we said, no, that's not what 1 Corinthians is stating. All right? Now, let me just show you some common drivel that you might see on the Internet. And I say this in a, in a way that I don't want to be unkind to this fellow. He's a Puritan, I believe, from the 17th century. His name is Thomas Watson. But you'll see this type of thought on the Internet often. When he asks the question, what is self-examination in 1 Corinthians 11, he says this. He says, it is a setting up a court of conscience and keeping a register there that by a strict scrutiny a man may see how matters stand between God and his soul. It is a spiritual inquisition, a heart, anato- a heart anatomy, whereby a man takes his heart in pieces as a watch and sees what is defective therein. It is a dialogue with oneself. I commune with my own heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now that sounds very pious, but it's completely impossible. And I want you to think about, think about um, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The obvious implied answer is no one. And yet this man communes with his heart. Okay, what's interesting is when Paul calls us to examine ourselves outside of 1 Corinthians 11, it's always an objective examination. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 13, 5. 1 Corinthians, thir- I'm sorry, that's first, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Listen to what Paul says. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now, let me just stop there for the sake of time. The issue that Paul is wrestling with is a bunch of Corinthian Christians who are saying that Paul isn't really an apostle. And so they're testing Paul. And so Paul is turning it around. He says, by the way, why don't you test yourselves? And by the way, if they fail the test, then they don't belong to Christ. But if they pass the test, it's an affirmation of his apostleship. Why? Because they heard about the Lord from him. (laughs) So ironically, if they pass the test, so does Paul, okay? But notice where it says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith, okay? That phrase, in the faith, has to do with the propositional content of the gospel. And we know that because it's used elsewhere in 1 Corinthians uh, 16, verse 13. Peter has that. We may have to put the microphone up to him again. 1 Peter 16, 13, what I want you to listen for is in the faith, and again, it stands for the propositional content of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Amen. Notice he says, stand firm in the faith. In other words, that's objective. You can do that. So when Paul says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith, you can objectively do that. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Truly man, truly God? You can look at that. You can objectively see that. 
Okay, do you understand? So this isn't, oh, well, I commune with my own heart and sit there and contemplate your navel. This is an objective standard. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he's been crucified, raised from the dead? for the, I mean, that's the content in the faith. So it's objective, okay? Now let me just point you to one other one. Uh, Galatians 6.4, Bob will be coming to this soon. Galatians 6.4, I'll read this. Oh, wait, did I give Galatians 6.4 to somebody? Nope, okay, let me read it. Galatians 6.4, Paul says this, he says, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And then he says, for each will have to bear his own load. So notice he says, but each one has to test his own work. You can objectively test your work, that is your deeds that you do according to the scriptures. Are they wicked or are they sinful? Are they according to the spirit or according to the flesh? You can objectively weigh those things. So the only time we're called to examine ourselves is objectively. And the, the standard is the scriptures. Do you see that? But this man, Thomas Watson, is advocating that you examine your heart. Well, in light of what? That he communes with his own heart. Okay, and this ends up being a bunch of navel-gazing where you never know how you stand. Okay, so the only time we're called to examine ourselves in Scripture, it's objectively, whether we're in the faith, whether our deeds line up with being in the faith. Is everybody with me? Now, what I want to show you, though, is when we're called to examine ourselves in 1 Corinthians it has nothing to do with looking at how you did during the week, but it's a specific request. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven through 29. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Okay, now, listen, we have another explanatory four. He's going to be explaining, what does it mean to examine oneself? Well, he says, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. So the key issue in examining yourself is judging the body rightly. Okay, meaning that you discern what the body is. So now the only question we have to wrestle with is, what is he talking about the body? What body is he talking about? The physical body of Jesus? That we have to recognize that in the elements, Jesus is present? No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about the corporate body of believers. And we know that for the, from the context of the passage itself. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, Paul here says, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Okay, in other words, the one body isn't, he's not referring to the elements, but the corporate body the believers that comprise the body of Christ. Notice I have Acts chapter 9 listed there. Remember Saul is persecuting Jesus? And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you what? Persecuting Christians? Persecuting me. That's right, why? Because Christians are the body of Christ. So when Saul goes after believers and kills them, he's going after Christ. So associated with Christ are we that we're called his body. Okay? So the problem at Corinth, Corinth, as I'm going to show you, is that you had wealthy Christians that were having their own supper. And so as if, let's just say I was this wealthy guy, and I'm having my own supper with my friends, and I look to all of you and say, well, what do you guys have to do with it? And I would be excluding you. And, you're, and here you are the ones who were purchased by the blood of Christ every bit as much as I am. 
That's what you had. You had factions at Corinth, okay? I'll finish this slide, we'll be done with it, and then we'll close. Um, but let me show you the problem that's at Corinth, because unless we understand this, we're not going to understand what it meant to examine yourself. That's what I want you to understand, is this call to examine ourselves is misguided if we're examining how sinful we were, how good we were during the week. It's a specific request. Here's the problem at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 22. Paul says, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better. He's talking about coming together for the supper. But for the worse, he says, for in the first place... When you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you. So that, now here's the reason why there's factions. So that those who are approved may come, become evident among you. Okay, now let me just stop here. Notice, he says, there must be factions. That is the divine necessity. It, must is day in Greek. Okay, and it has to do with the divine necessity. It was God's divine plan that there would be factions. Why? so that those who were genuine Christians would be shown to be genuine Christians. So those who were excluding themselves forever from other Christians in the fellowship, they were really never believers. Remember in 1 John 2, they went out from us because they, they were never of us, right? And so Paul is saying that this must take place. The true Christians have to be shown. So this was a divine plan. Nonetheless, it was sinful in doing it, okay? In fact, Paul says this, he says, that those who are approved may become evident. Approved there is dakimas. And it means to judge whether something is legitimate. Uh, in the ancient Near East, people would judge to see or test to see whether gold was uh, pure gold or not. Okay, and that's the idea of dakimas. Who had Romans 12 too? Judith, read that once. Listen to this. This dakimas is used here. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove that what the will of God is. Stop right there. We'll just stop right there. Though, so that so we have to be renewed by our mind, the renewing of our mind, so that we can prove what the will of God is. That term prove is dakimazo. It means to test what is legitimate. So notice, the way you and I are sanctified is by the renewing of our mind, okay? And then you and I are able to dakimatso. We can determine what's the will of God and what's not the will of God. Okay, now turn to Romans 1.28. Listen to those who are ah-dakimatso. They can't do that. They're depraved. Listen to this. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. A depraved mind, that's adakimas. Adakimas, they can no longer determine what is legitimate. Okay, so here's the point. The reason I'm mentioning those verses is dakimas means that someone has been shown to be true and legitimate, that they're a believer. Okay, and the way we treat one another in the Lord's Supper is one of the means that God was distinguishing true Christians from false Christians. Okay, now he continues, he says, therefore... When you eat, when, I'm sorry, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, listen to what he says. Here's an explanatory for. Now, what he's using that for is he's saying, hey, here's the reason it's not the Lord's Supper. He says, in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses which to eat and drink? And the obvious answer to that question is, of course they do. And he says, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing. Now, what's the obvious answer to that question? 
Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? The obvious answer is yes, that's exactly what they were doing. So at Corinth, you had wealthy Christians who were having their own supper, and they were saying, none of you poor Christians can be part of it. And what Paul is saying is, if you don't examine the body rightly and realize that every single believer is purchased by Christ and has access to the table, then you're abusing the Lord's Supper. And so that's the kind of examination that we're required to do. Notice Paul doesn't say, hey, examine yourself and determine how bad you were this week. And if you're really bad, you have no part of the table. No, ironically, they were to examine how they treated one another and that everybody has access to the table. Okay, so with that, Paul's conclusion. Let me just finish with this. 1 Corinthians 11, 33 through 34, he says, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. Why? Because Jesus Christ has purchased us all. That is for those who have trusted in him. And we all belong to the table. He says, If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. That way it doesn't end up being their supper rather than the Lord's. So that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Here's the issue. God's purpose in the Lord's Supper is we remember his promises. Remember Christ, remember the great promises that he has. What do the pietists want to do with the Lord's Supper? The pietist purpose is remember how bad you are. And let me ask you, dear ones, what's going to affect you in your Christian walk? Remembering Christ and the promises you have or remembering how bad you were for the week? Are you with me? Brothers and sisters, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper today. And we can all come as believers in Jesus Christ. And we have a promise that one day we're going to partake of the bread and the cup together in his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, the fact that we screwed it up this week and botched our Christian walk, that's precisely the point. We're not home yet. And God is going to use the Lord's Supper and the word that Bob preaches to us to sanctify us and keep us persevering to the goal. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the word that you have for us, that you did not leave us in darkness as the pagans, but that you gave us objective truth. And we thank you so much for these tools, these means that you have used to not only save us, but also to sanctify us and keep us remembering that you are coming again and that one day we will be worshiping you around the throne and having table fellowship with you, our great King and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for these great promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.